Welcome to the Black Writers Studio, a podcast presented by the Hurston Wright Foundation and hosted by Dr. Khadija Ali Coleman. The Black Writers Studio is dedicated to showcasing Black writers who are transforming the world today with their literary pen and creating a legacy for the culture. Yvonne Battle Felton is author of the award-winning book, Remembered. She is an academic, a host, and creative producer. Yvonne teaches creative writing at Sheffield Hallam University, where she is a principal lecturer and humanities business and enterprise lead. Host of Write Your Novel with Yvonne Battle Felton, a write-along podcast series developed with New Writing North, Yvonne creates and hosts literary and storytelling events and opportunities and has completed her second novel for adults and her first children's book. All right. So it is so great to, um, to meet you and see you in person, Yvonne. What, just so our listeners know, you are actually based out of the UK, correct? I am. I'm here in sunny Dewsbury, which is in West Yorkshire. Okay, so the, you know I am geographically challenged, so I I'm gonna ask in proximity to London. <laughs> I feel like that's everybody's question. Right. So we're about um, by train. It's about two and a half hours or so away from London. We're in the north of um, of the UK. So okay. yeah, it, so by train it, it's it's a, a lovely. Well, it's actually two trains, but um, <laughs> it's a lovely. It's a lovely day trip, though. Okay. Well, that's so interesting because I'm based in um, in Maryland, in a suburb right out of DC, out of DC, and so that distance between um, Maryland and where you're originally from, Pennsylvania, is about the same, two hours. And so I, I think I I want to start there because you are from the East Coast of the United States. You're American, living in the UK, and I'm just so curious. Um, you know, how long have you been in the UK? And as a writer, like what, have there been any differences between your writer life in America versus your writer life in, in, in the UK? So those are really interesting questions because I've been here for um, just about 10 years now. Wow, um, okay. I feel like it was 10 years in January and um, we came so I could do a creative writing PhD at Lancaster and Although when I applied, I really thought it might be an online program. <laughs> so wow, applied, 10 years ago, that's crazy. <laughs> and now and, that's the norm, right? <laughs> so yeah, if I had applied today, they'd have been like, yeah, you know, it's online, have right. fun. But now when I applied, I was like to my kids, wouldn't it be funny if it's in, um, you know, in the UK? And then when I got accepted, they were like, you know, to study in Lancaster. And I'm like, wow, what a weird way to say online. And um. <laughs> It's because that's not what it meant. And they were like, well, you're writing about slavery. So, you know, we just thought you'd want to be like here doing it. And I was wow. like, wow, like, okay. Wow. Wait a minute. So was there an option for it to be online? Um, you know, I want to say yes, but I'd say it might also depend on who your supervisors are, what you're working right. on and things like that. Because there are, there were some people that I never met who were doing the PhD at the same time. And okay. we met kind of virtually. So we would have some workshops. And so I know that there were people who weren't, you know, on campus, but for me, like, it was magical when the kids were like, yeah, we'll do it. And um, then I had applied for a bursary, which meant that it was faculty funded. So I didn't have to pay for my wow. PhD. Right. Okay. So it felt like things were just falling into place and I was meant to do it right. in UK. So how old we were your children at the time? So at the time, my youngest was seven and I had a 14 year old and a 17 year old. Wow. Are they all still in, in the UK with you? They are. So um, my oldest has recently finished her PhD at wow. Strathclyde. I know, right? And now she's, um, she's a faculty. She teaches uh, business and marketing in Look Scotland. at this. The know, whole right? family. That is so intense. And so the, the, the seven-year-old is now a teenager who yeah. basically grew up in the UK. And so their experience is so, you know, different from yours in terms of their upbringing. That's so, ma that's magical. And, and so I want to bring it to you because you have a book called Remembrance um, that came out 
is it 2019 or 2020? I saw two so publishing it's, it's, dates. Yeah, um, so it's remembered. And it's remembered, um, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. So it came out, you, you're right, you see the two different dates because it came out in the UK first because I'm UK based and my right. UK publisher, so it came out 2019 in the UK and in 2020 with my US publisher. Gotcha. Gets to have two birthdays. Right, that's so fantastic. And so you, you, your publisher coins this, um, this tale as um, having themes of mothering, motherhood, family, community, and the trauma of slavery. So I'm fascinated hearing about how your research regarding slavery took place in Europe right? And then you now, you know, your mother and you have, I, you, I, I know you have so many experiences that informed the writing of this, this piece, um, even though it's a, a fictional piece. Tell me a little bit about what went into this book and, um, and what parts of your life really influenced the writing of this book, because it just sounds very intense and fascinating. It really, um, doing the PhD with it, it was intense. And there were moments where it was like really emotional. And I feel like it was, um, like more emotional than I, I thought it would be like as a journey and as a book and as a process. But writing it, I started out because I had questions and I wanted to know about the emancipation and how families might have reconnected. So for me, it's a bit of a horror story because there's mm -hmm. nothing worse than not knowing that my kids are safe at the end of the day. I always want them to know how much I love them. So like, you know, every day in the morning is, you know, good morning and let them know that I love them every night, making sure I say I love you because, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I always want them to have that, like I was loved. Do you know what I mean? Like no matter what happens in the world, no matter when I go or in what way, whenever they think back, I want them to always think, you know what? Somebody loved me. Wow. And so for my characters, it was like the one thing I knew I wanted them to have was love. In the wet, whatever way they defined it, whatever way they had it, I wanted it to be something that they at least they had in like, valued or even if they didn't recognize it it was just like that was one thing that was important to me but I knew there was something about motherhood and just it was going to be a mother and it was going to be a son and so starting out it was questions like what might it have been like for them to reconnect how might they have found each other after the emancipation what would that healing have looked like and who would have helped them to heal from that trauma mm -hmm. also around guilt like as a, an enslaved mother, of course, they had no agency over what happened to their children, no power to protect them. But for me, so like my um, my oldest is 27 now. And yet when she, I still remember, that, and I have a horrible memory about so many things. And I'm one of those people who has the gift of like not harboring guilt over like most things. But, <laughs> but just before she turned one year old, she um, flipped out of her high chair. Oh my I goodness. I know, but I wasn't even there. I was at work. Oh she my was, goodness. Where was she? She was in daycare. So she was, in, she okay. was at the babysitter. And, you know, so you, somebody who's trusted to, you know, take care of her. And the woman does a fantastic job. She was like, absolutely wonderful. But my little girl fell out of the high chair and the, um, the babysitter called my now ex-husband to say, um, you know, she's, she's falling out and, um, and oh my goodness, she's fine now. But, um, I don't want to let Yvonne know, like, can you tell Yvonne? And he was like, oh no, like, you're going to have to tell her. Like, that's, that's going to be between you and her. And he was like, right. she was like, um, well, you know, I just thought it might be easier if you could tell her before she gets here. And in that way, it won't be a surprise. He was like, no, nah, you probably want to call her before she gets there. So it's not a surprise. And she's like, you know, I'm a little bit afraid of her. And, um, and he was like, you know, so am I. And I'm <laughs> we were interchangeable <laughs> but still like all these years later I'm like wow my little baby fell out right before her first year and wow. like so the things that you know you you hold on to and how would you connect with someone if you hadn't seen them for 20 30 40 years I mean of course like as a mother I'm thinking you're going that's my baby now your right. baby might be 50 60 years old now right and you miss all that. And somebody took that from you. Somebody stole mm -hmm. it from you. But, you know, people are people and pain is pain and, and all right. those things. So I've I can't even like, fathom that. Anyone who knows me knows that my daughter is the most important person in my life. I can't even fathom that. Like even, so I totally, I deeply 
that resonates with me deeply what you're saying and I totally and, and for you to say it's this moment and you wound up seeing her at the end of the day but imagine not only not being there but then not seeing your child in years or ever again you know so yeah I that deeply resonates with me so for me it was like um all those questions kind of went into the writing and the research and while I was doing because because for the PhD the writing is you know informs the research and I found myself writing more and more about motherhood and trying to see like, what's that boundary? What would these different characters do um, to save the, you know, the one that they love? And I found that their boundaries were often, um, yeah, I'm willing for someone else to kill for, you know, for, for this slice of freedom for my child or for, um, to keep my child from being raped. I am willing to put other people in danger. And it was, I was always interested by what characters did, but then talking to readers, there's like one character, and I love this character, um, and she loves her daughter, and for her, boundaries are um, keeping her daughter safe, what, you know, what can she do, and also keeping her from being raped, um, and then when she decides, like, you know what, okay, yeah, it is better for her to be free, because that's a journey for her, because she's I would imagine in my in the, in, in the world that they had, there was you know limited information, and so there was no guarantee that what was outside was any better than what was going on inside. And right. so for this mother, she wanted to keep her child with her, and then she realized, okay, you know what? Actually, I'd rather her you know be somewhere else and take those chances and see what might happen, even if it means I'm never going to see her again. Mm. At least I know that she might be free. And um, so she was willing to do some questionable things in order to achieve that. And other pe readers will say like um, how she was their least favorite character or how you know they were, um, I guess, upset with her as a character for the choices she made. And nobody has, has said like about the, the slave owner, like he's the one who put her in that position. She was responding, she had limited agency within the confines that he and you know, the US system and all these other systems put into place. So it wasn't as if those barriers weren't there but nobody says, oh, wow, that slave owner did this, this, this. And I'm always like, wow, like, that so speaks so sharply to even today, how the, the poor are maligned, how the disenfranchised are maligned before we even really do deep digging against those institutions in place that disenfranchise people and that are just institutionally corrupt. Exactly. So, wow, wow. So people blame the individual and yeah. the institution can run around and, you know, keep on doing what they're doing and dehumanizing yeah. people. And right. they, for some reason, it's not considered like their fault. It's like, well, you're supposed to learn to, to navigate within that system. Right. And how? Right. Like, how do you do it? So, yeah, I, um, the book was like, it was one of those things where it was an exploration and I was never quite sure what these characters were going to do. They mm -hmm. often surprised me. I was like, when a character died, I was like, wow, like I was crying. I was just like, mm -hmm. but it was because, you know, spending so much time with them and getting to know them and getting to care about mm -hmm. them and also having that level of respect for them while writing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I think it just, so earlier you asked me um, like the difference between the writer I am now and like mm -hmm. before I was, and mm -hmm. I would say when I was in the U.S., um, I was writing more short stories. I had finished my MA. I did my master's at Johns Hopkins. It was fiction and creative nonfiction. And for me, it was like creative nonfiction just was like magical because it was, you know, you writing about your life or your experiences and the world around you. But so while I was there, I was doing my uh, fiction and that was like, that's all what I thought I was going to do. And then this opportunity came up to take this, um, I always do this, nine-day intensive class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was in Florence. And oh, wow. I, I feel like I have to say that other part to say why I took this class in Florence. But really, right, right. I don't. Like, I could have said right. I just wanted to take it. But right. um, the, and the, one of the conditions to take this class was it had to be something you hadn't taken before. Hmm. And so creative nonfiction was one of the options. There were others. It was like some um, sentence power, like analyzing sentences down to the word and I was like no thank you that doesn't um, sound fun <laughs> no even in Florence like even if I was going to be in Italy just you know laying back with like uh. wine or whatever it, like <laughs> I felt like no nothing it was a tough tale but the creative nonfiction one I was like yeah I could do this one and until then I had done like I went back to school like earlier so as a later sorry as an adult and mm -hmm. um 
but I did it between momming and going to school and working and like, you know, doing everything else. And so I went to campus, like, you know, barely stopped the car, hopped out, went to class and then like, you know, went to work and then came home and mommed and then went back. And it was just like this sort of thing. I wasn't engaging in any sort of literary community or any events. Mm. And I'm sure they had them, but I wasn't doing it. And then when and I you were in Baltimore at the time. Right. Okay. And so it was like everything was in a way logistically closed, but not really because I was still taking classes right. in DC too. Because I oh, was wow. like, I, like <laughs> for the undergrad, I did it um at uh first at I want to say Baltimore County Community College and um what's the one in Glen Burnie? Like it's um, Anne Arundel County. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was because like by the time I could go back to school, which was like, it wasn't anything keeping me from it. It was one of those things I always wanted to go back and do. And then mm-hmm. once I took this bed and breakfast class that was at a community college and I came back and like my now ex was like, I mean, the kids had eaten dinner and like done homework. And when I came back, I had the same amount of kids that I left with. And I'm like, wow, you all can live life. And I can, you know, while I'm out doing something for me, like going to school. So once I realized that and I started going back to school, I started like a class at a time and then two and then three and then- Wait a minute, you're so funny. You said the same amount of kids. (laughs) (laughs) Give me space to laugh at that. That is so hilarious. You were like, y'all are still alive. I got the same kid. That is so funny. (laughs) But you know how sometimes, at least for me, it felt like I was like so immersed in- being like momming and doing all these things yes. that it was like wait a minute you like you all can actually be okay while I go right. out and do me right right and so like for me that was like a realization and so I like right. I went to school I went part-time like it was full-time and so I was doing that that's with awesome undergrad. so this so this is before you had gotten your beat so when you said you went to school late I'm thinking you're talking about for your master's and for your advanced degrees but you're talking about you started it at a so I'm a community college groupie. So yeah, yeah. So you start at a community college um, at CCBC and at Anne Arundel Community College. Sort of. I started okay. actually before that. So I graduated wow. early from high school to go to okay. university. Um, when I was 16, my mom decided she was moving to Germany and she was doing that um, by herself. So okay. um, it meant that while I was in, what was that? I was at Oakcrest High School. And um it was like a, a shift. So like before that I was college bound. I knew exactly yeah. what I was going to do. It, well, like not exactly. I just knew I was going to like make tons of money. And um, <laughs> Rich, and rich, rich, rich. <laughs> exactly. I was going to be a psychologist married to a mortician because I okay. felt like, you know what? Can't save everybody. But if I don't, those who I'm unable to save were there to help later. <laughs> one way or the other you know that's very old school that was that was a profession for many of our people when you know segregation was still in place so that was you know that's ancestral if you think about it yeah so so it wasn't even as morbid as it felt now like right right right. it meant that when my mom was going to leave um my chances were like were different then and so instead of finishing at my high school it would have meant moving to um high school in Atlantic City and um, they didn't have the same program. They may have, but like me being me back then, I was like, no, there is right. no way I'm going there. Um, but it was like, so what am I going to do? And my guidance counselor, Ms. Chapman, um, she found this school in uh, Simon's Rockabard College in Massachusetts, where it was for young people to go to, to, go to college. And so um, we applied and then I had a, I got a scholarship for that one. Um, I had a full scholarship, but I feel like one of the first things I learned in that first semester that a full is that a full scholarship doesn't cover uh, room and board. Right. And at that time, no one in my family knew about like um, that you can either request more financial aid. I'm not even sure if you could then, but nobody knew how that worked. And my grandmother owned four houses at the time, but she had already finished that whole mortgage journey and all that. So she was like, um, she didn't know about student loans. And like, so in, in the whole world of it was just kind of like, no, my mom didn't know about it. So I ended up going one semester at Simon's Rock and I couldn't afford to stay because I didn't have any place to be. So then mm. I moved back to Atlantic City. And then it was kind of like, I was lost for a while. Like I was living mm. with my grandmother and I was working 
And because I had put so much into like, I'm always going to go to university. That's just what I'm going to do. I hadn't planned like a plan B. It was just like, you know what I mean? Like I knew. Right. And then. And you're still so young. You're only like 17. Yeah, true, true. And you know, it's funny because in hindsight, like I forget that. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. when I think about it, I forget that part of it, but it was kind Mm -hmm. of like, um, like I, yeah, I didn't know what a, what a backup plan like looked like because I was so used to just being when I was. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) so I just, um, I started working and, uh, I started working and going to clubs, like clubs were a job. It was like (laughs) (laughs) living your best life. (laughs) Yeah, in a way, (laughs) and getting further and further from going to school. But I did take a class at um, uh, Atlantic City Community College, and it was Mm. about like Black American writers. Mm. And I always remember like reading those books. I felt like it. um, That actually is what saved the relationship with my mom, Mm. because it was in that book that I saw that okay, there are people who you might love who do things that you don't like. And it made me like, um, okay, I, I could get, I could wrap my head around the ways like, cause I know I was feeling like really lost and really abandoned though. I had mm-hmm. my grandmother, I, my sister was still there, but it was mm-hmm. like, who am I? Where am I? If I'm not in university right now, if I'm not on mm. that path, like I'm just, I don't know. And my answer was go to clubs, but, um, <laughs> like <laughs> surely that was going to run out one day. And, right. um, when I was reading like more and more books, uh, I was reading all these black authors and it just seemed like for some reason everything was happening in Baltimore, like in these books. And then I convinced a friend to move to Baltimore. And I feel like to this day, she never asked why. <laughs> oh, so you convinced her to move with you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And yeah. she did it. She did. And oh, that's about, a friend. I, I know. And I do that's feel like friend. if she had said like, um, have you been reading up about Baltimore? Like, what do you know? Like, I feel like I would have said, you know what? Let me pull out this library book. Because she'd have been like, what? <laughs> but, right. Um, but no, so we, we did based on either like, I had this like this. So I always say like words moved me to Baltimore because I mean, they, they did. It was the books. But um, so between that and we were going to... Uh, Morgan's homecoming and Howard's homecoming, but not going to like the homecoming part, but like the after parties. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> so it was books and after parties that um that got us to move to Baltimore, or that conv- that was able to make me or help me to convince her that yeah, Baltimore. Ooh, that's so funny. At this point, how old are you? Uh, I feel like I was uh, interestingly, I was around twenty-one because that's when I just, just like stopped going to clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might be saying, wow, isn't that when it was legal to go to clubs? And, um, <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> I can just say that at 21, it became less interesting to go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but so Baltimore seemed like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a start. Let's just do it. But even then I was working and I wasn't thinking like I could go back to school and I like, um, had my daughter, got married, still working, had my first son, my older son, um, still working. And then it was that bed and breakfast class. And because my grandmother had owned, um, her houses all had a job. Like they didn't have the luxury of just being like, you know, hey, I'm going to be a house. <laughs> so like <laughs> one of them, she was renting out in Philadelphia to, um, but she lived in New Jersey in this like, huge house that was a block away from the ocean. And even that house, it was a guest house. Um, and then it was also, there was a, like a permanent tenant in the basement apartment. There were um, long-term, but not permanent tenants in the, like the upper level. So this house was like earning. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. she went around the corner that was always, that was also um, like rented out. And then one that her grandfather, her father had built for his mm. family in Charleroi, which is where she ended up moving um, after Atlantic City decided to use eminent domain to buy out a lot of the houses of um, older Black people. Right. Um, I'm just, I'm, it might have been everybody, but it just felt like it was old, like all the older Black people. These had these huge houses and they used eminent domain to buy the houses for less money than they would have paid. Did they take your grandmother's house? They did for oh, um, housing no. for casino workers. No way. Broke her heart. Like her, her house was it was huge. It was a pink and white house. 
Um, it had a sun porch, it had this beautiful backyard, it had like just so many memories. And it's interesting because like for me at least, whenever I think of home, it's there. Right. And as I think of like um where like where is my where? Where right. am I like where's next for me or like, right. where does home look and feel like? I feel like it's it's there. Right. And even and when you speak no longer there. Even when you speak of the house, you speak of your grandmother and you speak it, it reminds me so vividly of um the communities that Toni Morrison writes about and you learn that they're born from these experiences of the town she grew up in and I wonder um does your grandmother's house do her houses and these experiences do they show up in your books and how how do you because you speak with you speak of them so vividly that I see them in my mind so easily oh that's that's wonderful so thank you so much for that but they do so and remembered um I set the, so it's a framed narrative and it's 1910 is the present. And in 1910, um, mm. the Edward has been beaten for a crime for he, that he may or may not have committed. And that's in Philadelphia. And part of that is because my grandmother lived in Philadelphia for a while. Um, I was born in Philly. Um, mm-hmm. Their community is 20th street. My grandmother lived on 20th street in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, I, don't think I said it was Germantown, though that was, that's where I was born, but I made up a hospital for my characters of 1910, because in 1910 Philadelphia, the hospitals were segregated, and it was only one mm-hmm. that would have served Black people, and because mm-hmm. I knew what was going to happen in my fictional hospital, I didn't want to use a real one, because mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to tell you to someone, oh yes, and your great-grandmother was a racist, wasn't she? Like, mm-hmm. that wasn't what I was trying to do with it. Mm-hmm. I made that up, but then I also, um, there is a uh, there's a house in um, interestingly for me. So the house in my head of um, that she had in Atlantic City. There's elements of it in the Walker Plantation, which is actually in the book in Maryland. But for me, it was because it was a house I know so well, and I could navigate like the front porch and the back porch, and this space. Like how um, how large is this house? And then even mm. one of the characters, like when she dies within the house, it's like because I know this house, but in the um, in the next book, um, the house is actually still <laughs> it's still there, but um, it has a uh, oh, it's the same because it's like it has a, ha- a happier existence in this in the second manuscript, except mm-hmm. that actually a character dies there as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's because I started out like reading murder mysteries and like writing right. murder mysteries, so and it goes like, back. To, to this earlier mortician <laughs> it just might be I'm the mortician <laughs> this proximity to mortuary sciences is just like this is a, a through line <laughs> it's always that in murder when I'm in classes and I'm like trying to give examples I'm like okay so you know you have two characters and one wants something that the other one you know wants and one doesn't want to give it and I'm like you know like a life and they're like <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, or like, um, like a, a lottery ticket, you know, that'll work. <laughs> That's so funny. But, it, you know, it, it just sounds like I, I love how this house now, knowing that this house that you've just given it this everlasting life that it makes these appearances. I think that's beautiful. I, I remember when watching your TED talk um, and you were talking about writing, um, one of your quotes was, you know, I create life as a writer. And then you say, I create endings. And so would you say that, um, because it also seems with these themes of mothering, and then you mentioned how writing helped you really reconcile with your mom or understand your mom better. Would you say when you, um, that writing has really allowed you the, the space to make sense of your own life or to really, um, and not to not rationalize anything, but really understand things better, particularly as you, you grow older? I think it does. I think it gives me that space to commune with myself. And so in fiction, it might take me to different places, but it also reminds me that everyone has a story that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And to like, to sit down and sometimes just listen and just, you know, mm-hmm. like let their stories like do their thing. 
um, mm. especially like now, I want to say it's because I'm older, but it's actually always this, like I forget <laughs> names and I forget people's faces, like makes no difference to me. Um, and they'll be like, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm not even going to remember that. Like, I don't even know why, but what I do remember <laughs> is people's stories. Mm-hmm. Like, it'll be something that I'm just like, oh. Yeah, like, I mean, it'd be horrible. I, hopefully, I would never be like one of those characters who'd be like, you're the one who killed your husband, like, you know, whatever. Because <laughs> you're going, wow, like, you just need to pretend not to have heard that murder thing and just, you know, leave right. alive. Right. But there's something about stories that, like, it connects me with people in ways that, like, I need to be connected. Mm-hmm. So, like, in Lancaster, um, a friend and I had a two-story open mic night. And for me, it was like a great way to get to know people in places, especially people I hadn't given birth to, because mm-hmm. I thought when I came to Lancaster, everyone else, I like the people I knew were those mm-hmm. that, you know, I had birthed. And so <laughs> it was like, well, how can I get to know more people? And it was through their stories. And there's something magical about true stories and inviting mm-hmm. people to just, you know, come up to the stage, grab a mic and in their three to five minutes, a lot of time, um, <laughs> And it does Mm -hmm. sound like a really like thin slice of time. Mm -hmm. But one, like I love that because it means that you don't have time for um a lot of the other stuff that might surround the story or a lot of apologies or a lot of um deflection or whatever. It's just you have three to five minutes and you can, you know, do with it what you will. And each time, each person telling their story feels like magic. We've moved to Dewsbury this summer, and I felt like um, I needed it. Like, I needed some stories. So I started a two-story open mic night here. Mm. The one thing that I think is interesting to me is that in Lancaster, people would say, I don't have a story to tell. I didn't climb a mountain. I'd like, I just, I, everybody was talking about this mythical mountain. There's no mountain in Lancaster. Like, mm. none. But that was all their reference point. And I don't know if it's because they're in, the, they're, they're in what's called the Lake District and there are mountains, but they're like an hour or maybe like something away. They're not like, you don't look out the window and go, oh, there's this mountain. But they're all like, oh, I don't have like the right to tell a story. And it took convincing. And I hadn't been expecting that. I just thought people would be like, yeah, I have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. In Dewsbury, which is in West, West Yorkshire, they're like, yep, got a story to tell. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, my people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know earlier so I do have this like weird memory but earlier when you had asked about the difference about the writer that I am now it's mm-hmm. definitely that sense of community mm-hmm. I learned that when I went to Florence I learned that um how important a writing community can be mm-hmm. and just like that's the first time I looked around me and I saw the other students on the course mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it was like wow like um you know if like if we weren't in a project together or if I wasn't workshopping or things I didn't know them outside of that. Mm. But in Florence, it was like I was immersed in being a student, immersed in being a writer. Mm-hmm. But I also, um, and I don't remember if I talked about it in the TED Talk. I'm sure I did. But like one thing there, because of what I was writing when I went, it was fiction, but it was more autobiographical than I even mm-hmm. realized when I was writing it. There were like mm-hmm. three main characters and each one was going through something I either felt emotionally or was going through just like actually and Mm -hmm. when I was there the one um professor who I hadn't had like throughout the time he um asked me like who was the main character and what did she want and two of them were um women and one was a man and so for him to be like what does she want it was like kind of narrowed it down like he didn't think that other one was the main character and then I'm looking at it and looking at it and I'm like wait a minute so if these are thinly veiled versions of me what do I want and it was the first time in a long time that I had looked at, like, wait a minute, I do. Like, there are mm-hmm. things I want. And I had been going through that stage of, like, separation in the marriage where, like, um, where you're separating, but you're dating other people. And, like, mm-hmm. you're getting to know other people. And they would mm-hmm. be like, so, like, what do you like to do? And I'd be like, oh, motocross. And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I take my, I was taking my son to motocross. And I liked making oh, him, happy, wow. but taking him there. But, like. It wasn't, I was not going to drive, you know, jump on a motocross and be like, room, room. Like I was just, mm-hmm. and they'd be like, okay, what's your, you know, what kind of music do you like? And it'd be like the music that the kids liked. So mm-hmm. I had kind of lost, like, what is it that I mm-hmm. like? And what is it that makes mm-hmm. me like, you know, but mm-hmm. to do that on the page was like, oh my gosh. And it was just so eye opening, like looking at, okay, so if I'm the main character, what do I want? 
Mm-hmm. What stands in the way? What am I willing to do to get what I want? Mm-hmm. It was like, whoa, like it just felt magical. It felt so empowering. And so mm-hmm. even now, whenever I have something and I'm like, well, like, I don't know what, like, what am I going to do or where's next? I start looking at, okay, plot it. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me that the people in my life, there's things that they want and that they need that are mm-hmm. actually outside of what I want. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. But on the pages when I can see it and I can see it honestly without like, you know, it doesn't hurt. Like, you know how like um when you hear like for a while I thought my kids loved it in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and um like it just felt like and I don't know if part of that was because like it just feels like um I'm enjoying it and I'm experiencing this and that and I'm like, oh wow, like we're all having a great time. Mm-hmm. And like my older son would like to be somewhere else now and I'm like, oh, okay cool um and now my youngest is like so like France and I'm like (laughs) what about it um because even in my head like even if we were to move I'm thinking we could go to Italy although to be Mm -hmm. fair I don't sell it well because I'm like we could live near a mountain and it's like a volcano (laughs) so cheap and I'm telling like yeah it might be a bit toasty when the volcano is up but look at that view. Lava shmava. Exactly. I mean, and then for real, like when you look at this, so many horrible ways to die. And like oh there are ways goodness. I don't want to die. But like, yeah, I don't like if lava. Okay. Mom, I don't think that's selling it well at all. <laughs> and you know, it's funny because every time I'm like, what about this place? Something happens. So I'll be like, what about this? Like, then it's like a volcano or I'll be like, all right, what about that place? And then it's like an earthquake. And I'm like, okay, what about this other place? It'll be a tsunami. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should just go and not say, what about this place? <laughs> right. And definitely don't mention that this is a nice place to die. Like that, that needs to be something that we need to address right now that that is never a selling point. <laughs> feel like I would like to die of old age okay like, I would just love to do that and then but your child them. your your children don't need to be hearing that right now you try to sell them anything <laughs> well, well look at the chances here the chances are really good that I could just die of old age uh, uh, yeah but when I'm like um okay so the volcano but like yeah I mean it's a volcano but when you think about it so the view the ocean and could you Uh, imagine no absolutely not I think I'm down with the kids absolutely not but you know what what I find so interesting um when as you talk about this and you know you just speak so easily about how writing has just been therapeutic and healing and just really part of um, just the framework of how you do your inner reflection. And I just think that that's so beautiful. And I know that um, you're working on a new book and I would love for you to talk about what you can about the book. Cause I know that, you know, you, it's, it's still in some working phases, um, but how have you applied some of these life lessons into this new book? What are some of the things that we'll probably see that are familiar in this new piece? And what are some, some things that have, that really speak to your growth as a writer? Well, that's a great question. Um, I would say, so the book is inspired by the lottery. And right now the title is Curdle Creek. And it's a place that I keep returning to. So like a friend had invited me to write a, um, he was, he was putting together a crime anthology and I don't write crime, but he was like, oh, you know, so I'd be a part of it. So, um, so I wrote a flash fiction and that was inspired like these two characters and what it might be like if the lottery was in an all black town and it was um, in con- like contemporary, but I never wanted them to, they would have access to technology if they wanted to, but I wanted them to not use it by choice. Like by um, the town charter would be like, they wanted to keep people kind of behind technologically wise so they could control access to information. And then, so we we did that and was published in that. And then the next year he was like, oh, do you know what? Do you want to write a longer piece? Because he was doing like a longer anthology. And I was like, ah, sure, why not? So it was like a chance to go back into that world. And even when I wasn't going back to it, it was something about the character and something about their journey that was really inspiring, like really interesting to me. And it's Mm. this place of people who are willing to do like bad things to each other Mm. so that they can um, 
either their town can prosper. And even if they don't know why they're doing it, they like they keep doing this, this thing and they don't leave. And I was really drawn back to that idea of them not leaving and staying by choice. And so now during the pandemic, it was kind of like um, the experience of it within the UK and also watching what was going on in the US from here and, and always asking like, where is home? And you know, where would I return to? And I'm looking at both places thinking, wow, it feels like we're slipping back in time. Mm. And just, it's with that, it's with the protections, it's looking at um, what's going on in the U.S. around abortion rights and mm -hmm. what's going on in the U.K. around immigration bills and just all these things. It just feels like we're slipping, not even slipping, just like sliding, like hurtling mm -hmm. back in mm -hmm. time. And mm -hmm. so um, I found myself drawn to Curdle Creek. So writing it, I think there's going to be some familiar things around ghosts because there's ghosts and remembered. Like Tempe is throughout the novel, she's um, a ghost, but she only can come back to deliver bad news. So she's like mm. the bearer of bad news. But mm -hmm. in this book, they're trying to keep ghosts from returning to the town and they do horrible things to people while they're alive. So why they would think someone would come back dead is kind of like, <laughs> but, but writing it, it was kind of like, it's, I think my, it's my first kind of American Gothic mm -hmm. and so there was there's a lot of um haunting but also one thing I had wanted to write or thought I wanted to write about but just kind of couldn't write about yet was the Tulsa race riots mm. and one I mean of course wanting to write about it so that nothing like that you know kind of happens again but then when you're doing that research then it's like the whole red summer and realizing that this wasn't an isolated incident mm -hmm. where there was you know a whole history of towns mm -hmm. being terrorized right. and it was like I don't know that I like I knew I wasn't ready to write that because at one point I thought um the only way that I can write certain characters is if I saw you know how during lynchings there were certain sorts of people who brought their families and they would um, take back souvenirs. So they would, you know, mutilate and torture and murder these black people and um, and cut off body parts and, and mm -hmm. take pictures and have um, postcards. And in order to write complex characters, because I do want all of my characters to be complex and layered and, and human in those ways, I felt like, wow, I can't write this sort of character who would do those things without reading this postcard because something about the sort of character who would do that thing was inhuman to me. Mm. And I'm like, okay, if I can read their own words about like, so what sort of person has a, a postcard of this horrible thing and then writes, you know, weather's nice, wish you were here. Like, what did they write on the, on the back of that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I got like, so in wow. my head, I just could not like, I, yeah, I couldn't make them human unless I read their own words. And then I got mm -hmm. stuck on that. And I realized it was probably because I wasn't ready to write it. So at that time, I'm doing all these research, looking for these postcards. They wouldn't come up, wouldn't come up. And then finally, when I was like, you know what? What can they say that's going to make you say, oh, yeah, you're a human? Like, even going through different scenarios, I'm like, oh, I just can't do it. Like, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, this is just right. not my book to write. Right. And so with, with Curdle Creek, like, there are elements of it where I show it's um, there's a, like a fictional town, there's smoke, there's kind of burning. And my main character acknowledges that. There's also a scene um, that's kind of uh, when the character is a bit between like heaven and hell. There's, um, and I say like it's nothing, right? Excuse me, heaven and hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's watching this scene where another character is fleeing to her, sound for, her town for safety. And instead mm. of that, because the town doesn't want to get involved and they don't want anyone to know that they're there, they um, lead her to danger mm. and they don't help her when she needs it. And so for me, that was kind of as close as I could get to what that might be like. But I do, I feel like as a writer, probably the thing that's becoming as I mature is knowing um, not every story is mine to write and right. also being cognizant of the why. So even mm. if I was to write like um, one reason I was, was not going to write the actual like Tulsa race riot, like people have done it and they've done a you know marvelous job. But one reason that I wasn't going to do it is because I'm not trying to hurt anyone who was um, a, a family member who's you know nobody wants to read about this could have been their great grandmother or whatever who was terrorized. Those are the people I'm not trying to hurt. And so I thought, no, I'm not like I'm not going to fictionalize that. Um, and so you know sometimes like just knowing your boundaries and knowing what you can do, but also knowing what you can do safely for yourself, like mentally, emotionally. 
I know that. And um, ethically, it sounds like you yeah. just you, you're you're learning who you are as a writer ethically because you really you don't really think about those things until you're confronted with making a decision and for you to even be thoughtful enough, you know, because even though that history is not of your family specifically, it is your history as a black woman, as a, you know, an American born woman, this is the history that impacts all of us. And so you have a certain care for it. And so ethically having to, to think about that now, especially knowing now that you're your writing has legs, you know, you're not just writing for yourself. You're writing now where this audience has embraced you as a writer. So that's really interesting that how and, and when you had to come to making these decisions ethically about your writing. But, you know, with, with Remembered, it was like that for me as well. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I couldn't say that there was um, a specific family member who was enslaved, but what I can say is that I've inherited the legacy of slavery. Right, and I felt like, right. Um, this is the framework where I can work with this ethically and be like, okay, you know what? Um, yes, this, these things happen and this character is going to tell it. And one mm-hmm. thing I really enjoyed about that book was um, where the characters wanted to go. And there were like, I was not going to have my character. Um, I think there were ways that people thought the book might end mm. and like that the character would either find God and, you know, find some for some sort of, solace with religion and that was not her path um you can't give also, it away you can't oh, give it sorry. away you can't no and no spoiler alert to anything <laughs> so not to give anything away read the book and you will come to your own conclusion about right, right. Her, her conclusion was the way that um the character would have been proud right right <laughs> so you know as we we could talk for a, a very long time what time is it is it um early there in the UK I have no idea what our time difference is are yeah, you in the morning seven o'clock in the evening no it's my in day is done yeah I've already oh, wow. like, okay. done marking and um meetings and I'm I'm at this point this point where I am um meeting rich and time poor yeah so I have like meetings after meetings after meetings. yes I know that life. In fact, I have a meeting right after this this talk with you. So I, I want us to make sure that we get in. If you can share with the folks, where can they find, where would you like for them to get um, your latest book, Remember? So they could get it. <laughs> you, um, you saw my mouth about to say remember, I did, right? I was like... <laughs> Remembered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they should be able to get it from um, a couple of places. So if they're in the U.S., um, it's on Amazon.com and um, bookshop.com and .org um, in the UK. It's also at, um, it should be at your local library. Like there's something special to me for like someone to pick it up from a library. Yes. Like, I love libraries and just having yeah. it on a shelf somewhere. And like, so if anyone is, you know, if you see it in your library, if you could take a picture for it, like of oh, it, yes. that would be so special to me. Where can they tweet it to you? Are you on Twitter or Instagram? Where do you want them to hit you at? Um, so Twitter, I am at why battle Felton and on Instagram, I'm why I write battle Felton. So it's why W H Y. So please like either one of them, you could on Twitter, there is a why battle Felton on Twitter. I'm sorry, on um, Instagram, who is also me, but I don't know the password for that one. <laughs> so I'm like locked out of it. Um, and oh, no. I don't even know. I have like, I guess I have one too many emails because they're like, you can reset it by doing this. And I'm going, if I could do that, I would have right. done that. <laughs> exactly. So um, <laughs> instead of that, it's why I write Battle Felton. And you, do you have a podcast yourself? I do. So I have... Um, one that I've devised called Write Your Novel with Yvonne Battlefelton. Um, and it should be available wherever you find good and bad podcasts, I believe. <laughs> and I'm in the process now of devising one because I love being read to. And mm. so this one is called Bookable Space. And it's um, I've invited writers to read to me and we'll talk about their book. And all I want to hear is like, um, tell me a story. Mm. And so they get 30 minutes. I I initially um, put out a call thinking I'll get 12 people and I have one episode, you know, per month. And then um, more and more people responded and I thought, okay, I can do it, you know, weekly. So, and then now I'm looking at having to do it um, twice a week. Wow. So many people are like, yeah. And for me, it's just a chance for, you know, me to be read to, but also for books 
and authors to meet readers who haven't, you know, met each other and readers yes. to find new books and not even new. I said, that, like, as long as they are published in the last 20 years and they're available in a bookstore or a library, then people were welcome to, you know, Oh, that's take lovely. And are they, do they have to be um, novels or can they be children's books, any type of story? Not children's books yet, only because um, I feel like I, I'm not marketing to, to kids, right. but they could be... Um, memoir it could be creative nonfiction. um if it's a textbook it has to be something that um you can read to me engagingly um and i think that's <laughs> <laughs> that's right put those restrictions on because they will bore you to death and i'm let thinking you read, know what let me read this today. chemistry book to you <laughs> can you imagine and i'm going mm. <laughs> No dear. And, I mean, thankfully it's on Zoom because I'd be like, um, end call, leave me <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, you know, I, I, I really hope to um, reach out to you for you to do some things with Hurston Wright later on down the line um, because you just seem to have such a wonderful um, just air about you when it comes to just telling your story, but also um, pulling that out of other people. And so I really enjoyed talking with you today um, and getting oh, to know you, you Miss Yvonne. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a joy to talk to you. And oh, I would love to you. do things with you all. Awesome. Awesome. What, what do your students call you? Do they call you Dr. Y, Dr. What do they call you? You know, here it's really informal. So in the U.S., that is the one thing I miss. It's like um, they'd be like, Professor Battlefield, and, and you're like, huh. Um, <laughs> and so in here it's like um it's really informal so everyone is just like Yvonne and um which is you know fine um yeah. it is quite nice when you go to places and it's like um Dr. Yvonne Battlefelton yeah. but um but yeah it's really informal which is you know it's fine it's all good it's all exactly. good exactly I you know and I will I will close out by thanking you Dr. Yvonne Battlefelton for being on the Black Writers Studio and I look forward to when we meet again thank you so much oh, thank you <laughs>